it doesn't matter what I'm dancing. It's always going to have a story and it's always going to be about, um, even if I only get one rehearsal before I have to perform it, or I get to work on something for months, but, um, just the, the time that I get to make something with somebody else and the experience of dancing with them. And, you know, what is this that we're doing? Like, that's, that's the part of it that I've always loved and enjoyed. And, um, and so that's why I really, I really am thankful for the relationships that I've built and the people that I've gotten to become, you know, so close with and lifelong friends with, and, you know, build a community with, um, cause I think that's, that's, what's the most important part of it for me. Welcome to the Artist Becoming Podcast. Hey, Jess. Hey, Shelby, a five, six, seven, eight. Join us in weekly conversations with performing artists across stages, studios, rinks, fields, and screens. Every conversation, a chance to dive deep into the story of their becoming. All right, Shelby, let's get on into it. This episode's conversation features our guest, Sarah Van Patten, a principal dancer with the San Francisco Ballet, a mother and co-founder of Tahoe Dance Camp. Sarah is a true artist becoming. Let's get into it. Welcome to an artist becoming conversation with our guests that we are so delighted to be sharing this conversation with today, Sarah Van Patten. Um, or who, as I always knew, uh, growing up dancing at the San Francisco Ballet School, SVP or the eyes was what I always thought of you as on stage. <laughs> and all of the students, those piercing eyes that can be seen from the very back, furthest back row in the um, highest tier of the theater. And Sarah has had uh, just a magnificent career. She started at the Boston Ballet School, I believe, and went on to dance at Royal Danish Ballet, where she was actually the youngest corps de ballet member, I believe, that's ever been hired by that company. And at very young age of, I believe, 17, but we'll fact check with Sarah. <laughs> she uh, danced the role of Juliet in John Newmeyer's Romeo and Juliet, which was my dream role of all dream roles. And probably every girl who's ever danced to any form of music would just dream to dance that role. And she went on to join the San Francisco Ballet as a soloist, became a principal and has been with the company for, I believe, 20 years. So, whoa, I'm like out of breath just speaking to that career. It is just awe-inspiring, and it's been such a pleasure to witness your artistry, Sarah. And so just to ground ourselves in this conversation, we'd love to ask you to perhaps take us back to the beginning seed of your artistic journey, um, whether it was as a dancer or however you may have began, and then perhaps just talk us in your own winding way through to what were those sort of pivotal sparks or moments that you pursued this career from at that young age and perhaps those pivotal moments that led you to where you stand today? Yeah, well, first of all, thank you so much for having me here today. I really appreciate being um, your guest and uh, talking with you. 
Um, it has been a long journey. Um, and I am thrilled after 20 years of dancing with San Francisco Ballet that uh, this year is going to be my retirement year. So mm-hmm. it is as you come to the end, you think about the beginning. So um, going all the way back to when I started dancing, I was, um, like six or seven and I did start, um, kind of on a professional track when I was Mm. at age at Boston ballet, although I actually didn't pursue, uh, staying in the school at Boston ballet, I found a smaller school, uh, Balanchine school that was with a teacher, Jacqueline Kronzberg. Um, who taught all of the classes. And I did a summer program with her and realized that that spoke to me. And that was the training and the school and the environment that I really wanted to be a part of. And I think when I transferred into this school and I started um, working um, in the Balanchine technique and um, learning a lot of Balanchine ballets um, during those years, that's actually when I decided I really wanted to be a ballerina. It was less in a performance. It was more in that experience. Um, And so I trained um, at her school until I was about 14, 15 years old. And that's actually when I joined the Royal Danish is when I was 15. I moved to Copenhagen. Wow. Okay. If you can't see her younger, (laughs) we have jaws on the floor. That is wild. I mean, I, that is wild. I was a little younger. <laughs> um, yeah, it was, again, I, you know, a dance career is a young career, but I was a little bit even younger than most. <laughs> and I definitely, I definitely acknowledge that because I did not move in with a host family. I didn't move into some dormitory. I, I moved into my own apartment and was an apprentice in the company and was one of, you know, I started company life living on my own. So I was definitely quite young, um, but I, I had had such a wonderful training in my school um, and I was very lucky because I trained and performed many incredible Balanchine works. So I'd already done Terpsichore and Apollo. I'd done Russian Girl and Serenade. I'd done the leading concerto Broco. I'd done Second Act Giselle. I had done... Um, Beze de la Fay, I had done all of these incredible roles um, when I was 12, 13, 14 years old. And I'd worked with all the greats like Meryl Ashley and Violet Verdi. And um, mm. just my, my teacher would just brought everybody in, Adam Luders. And, um, and so I just felt so fortunate to have had such an incredible experience already. Um, even though nothing can prepare you for company life. (laughs) Um, so yeah, but, but I was, um, yeah, I was kind of thrown into the world of, um, a professional company very, very young. Oh, I mean, we have to pause for questions. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I just want to ask on behalf of our listeners, so many people, it's a question that I got all the time because we, we share Royal Danish in common as, as a really um, significant part of our career history is like, what brought you over to Denmark? Like why, why overseas at that point when you're so young, especially? Mm. That's a great question. Um, And it was really kind of a, a couple of 
factors all lined up. So the director at the time was Oa and Colleen, Colleen Neary, who was a New York City ballet dancer. Mm-hmm. My ballet teacher, as I mentioned, her name's Jacqueline Kronsberg. Her daughter is Sandra Jennings, who's a Balanchine repertoire, yeah. um, who set all of my ball- all of the ballets that I did as a child mm-hmm. and teenager. Um, and so she was going to the Royal Danish to set, um, I want to say, I want to say it was um, Swan Lake, like second act or something. And her and Colleen obviously know each other. And Colleen mentioned that um, they were interested in apprentices um, and if she knew of anybody. And so my teacher brought myself and two other students over um, to audition. And I was at the time I was thinking, oh, well, I kind of give this a try. Or I was thinking what I do like a professional level, like school, like what I do SAB, the highest level to try to go to city ballet or like what was the next kind of step for me. And that was kind of the other option, thinking that being a Balanchine trained student, like city ballet was the the place to go. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so it worked out that I was um, offered an apprenticeship and I figured I might as well just dive right in. So <laughs> moved to Copenhagen. <laughs> Okay. So so the follow-up question to that would be, I did very much the same, right? All Balanchine training, athletic fest footwork, pretty much the exact opposite of Bornenville, um, which Royal Danish is, is the founding father of. And so, uh, I'd love to know how your experience was translating Mm -hmm. across styles, you know, when you've been so such an articulate training around one language, and then you dive into a company, of course, you know, the directors at the time were, were Balanchine dancers, which was similar to me. Nikolai Huba had just come back from New York city ballet. So there was a lot of Balanchine in the rep. Was that the case for you? Or did you have to adapt quite quickly to Bournemouth? I think, I mean, being an apprentice, I wasn't really, I mean, yes, I did Bournemouth ballets and I actually did a little tour. What I, with some of the other, um, world Danish dancers where I did one of the variations in Napoli and I never did it on the main stage, but I was more kind of like a sylph in the back or okay. I was doing the like, what is the like sulfy little really? thing? The, anyways, I was the real. Doing like the, <laughs> the real. Yeah. I was doing like real core stuff yeah. and I was only there for two years. Um, okay. But, but I was also, I think, um, yes, I was very trained and disciplined in uh balancing style. But as I said, I also, did do Giselle's second act, um, growing up. And that was one thing that my teacher also incorporated, um, was, was to make sure that we experienced more than, than kind of just Balanchine work. And it was foreign and new. Um, and I think at the time joining the Royal Danish, I was one of very, very few foreign dancers (laughs) and I was super young. So, um, we used to have a Bournemouth class for foreign dancers, (laughs) which I don't ever think I really mastered well, but, um, but it was at a time where you're still like coming out of like training and like that school mentality, um, it did offer insight into just kind of the basics of the approach of how like timing for certain steps and how you would approach something. Um, so I think that kind of helped me along a little bit. Um, 
but I don't really think I, I was there long enough, um, to really be immersed in like a Bournemouth work in a significant way. Okay. That makes sense. I'm just, I'm just sort of reflecting on that really, really tender and vulnerable transition of being a student and going into a professional thinking of you at that age and just also the reverence with which you speak to your teacher. I can hear and feel even now that that bond seems like it was very formidable for you. And I'm curious to know, you know, what, obviously to equip you to be ready to even get that job at that age, you were being imparted with something from that teacher that was beyond the steps. And I'm curious what that was perhaps, or perhaps maybe I'm making that assumption, but you know, was there some sort of special ingredient that I know from my coaches that I worked really closely with, there was something more that they were connecting with me on that became like more intrinsic to who I grew into as a dancer. And I'm curious perhaps what that was for you with that teacher And then how that showed up for you as you navigated that sort of sticky transition phase. And when getting the role of Juliet and being thrust into that type of spotlight, I'm sure that came with its own kind of pressure, challenge, contrast, shadow and, and light. And so perhaps merging those two questions together. Let me see what I can do. Um, <laughs> no, I hear you. You know, so the reason I left Boston Ballet, which again, it was a great school. It was like the school. They wanted me to be in their professional track and all this, you know, and I didn't really, not that I didn't care about ballet yet, but it it didn't like mean anything to me really. Um, it wasn't until I, I went to this school and I did a summer, two week summer course with Jackie and that I realized that that's who I wanted to train with. And, and that's when it became special for me and something that I wanted to do. Mm. Um, and I think for me, it's always, um, there are different ways of going about a career and I had no idea what my career was going to be, but some people like many different experiences and they go to like three, four places, you do four years somewhere, another four years somewhere else. And that's great. You get a bunch of different things. I always knew I wanted to make a home somewhere and I wanted, um, the relationships that I'm the really, the people who I'm working with and those relationships need to be special to me. Um, in order for me to spend my time and my life there. And I think when I found, um, when I met Jackie and she used to pick me up from school and we used to have private lessons and we had a very intimate working relationship and my parents worked a lot. So she was very much a part of beyond my training Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and that kind of led way, obviously when I got to Copenhagen, um, she was the one that really helped facilitate, you know, that getting there. And she literally came with me to Copenhagen and I auditioned and everything, even though when I joined the company, I was by myself. Um, but yeah, I was 15 and I was an apprentice in the back of the studio and John Neumeyer showed up to watch class and he just 
saw me in class and put me on the roster for like an audition in the up. Do you remember the studio all the way up that takes yeah. like 10 minutes? To get to? Yes. Um, didn't even really know how to get to the studio yet because I was so green and, um, yeah. And I just stood in the back thinking to myself, I was, there was like three principals, maybe a soloist or two and me. And it was just like, I can't even believe I'm standing in the studio right now, let alone, you know, and he had every, it was the beginning of the balcony pot of dough where you like, if I remember this was like 22 years ago, but you like run forward and you do this big developé and it's like the beginning of the pot. And I was just like trying to pick up steps by myself because who would work with me? Cause I was like a 15 year old apprentice that, just showed up and everybody went before me and took time. And then there was like a couple minutes left. And so let me give it a go. And one of the more senior principal men, um, you know, did the beginning of the pot with me. And that was the end of the rehearsal. And I was like, wow, now that's going to be a great story to tell. And the casting goes up and I'm opening night Juliet with the principal man. And I hadn't turned 16 yet. So I did turn 16 by the time we premiered, um, but yeah, so that's how it <laughs> happened. <laughs> and I'd been in the company maybe like a month or two and I was, you know, maybe one of 10 foreign dancers at the time mm-hmm. in a very heavily Danish company. Um, so that was, that was a lot. Um, it was an <laughs> side eye <laughs> for the listeners. <laughs> I told you the eyes don't lie. Um, yeah, I think in terms of when you think of like, uh, like how did I handle the pressure? Mm-hmm. I have to be honest at that age. You, I don't, I didn't understand. I was, I was excited of course. Cause I was like, wow, this is great. But I didn't, I didn't really understand what all of that meant, you know? And I was like, okay, so I'm going to go to rehearsal now and I'm going to learn this ballet and that's all great. But now I I would probably see my name go up and I'm doing, you know, I mean, granted I've been doing it for years, but the queen of Denmark came, it was like, and I showed up maybe like an hour and a half before the show. And I was like, okay, but like, you don't have a routine. You don't know, like any of the things you just kind of, you know, you, you, you do it. I remember eating like innocence is bliss. <laughs> yeah. I remember eating like a hamburger, like an hour or two before it's like, you just, yeah. And it's you like know, you're off your school sport. <laughs> it's not, yeah. You're like, okay. Um, which, you know, the innocence was real, which is, I think what John was, um, really liking obviously about, um, you know, having me, um, in the role, but I, yeah. So that was, that was how I started in Copenhagen. Talk about baptism by fire. That is, that is extraordinary. And I think that, um, you know, so many different companies approach opportunity differently. Like there's the company where the companies where you have to be in the core for like 15 years before you're even looked at. And then there's the ones that pick you out of the back line and give you these, these carrots and these opportunities. And, I think that when you're young and you're, you're trusted with these huge spotlight moments, it, I almost liken it to like when, or if you go skiing and then, which no dancers go skiing, but like you see these five-year-olds that just like zoom down black diamonds with no fear. And, and I think part of it is that you haven't experienced that much failure yet. 
or you haven't experienced that much, um, like hardship, injury, criticism, uh, all of these things that kind of knock you down and, and brew insecurity with, within different layers of your being. And, and then the longer we stick around, the more we're attuned to all of those things. And so, so much more becomes at stake. And, and I see that across, you know, relationships and, and ballet for sure, which is as dancers, ballet is many of our first love and first heartbreak often. <laughs> so I think it's, you know, extraordinary that you were given this, handed the spotlight, earned the spotlight at such a young age. And then, you know, I guarantee that that experience informed in so many ways, if not in retrospect the way that you showed up for opportunities throughout your career. I think it's tremendous. And I mean, I'm sure you've danced Juliet so many times since then. And, you know, the history of each of those opportunities is carried within you each time. So it it's new and it's reverential, which is just so unique. It's so cool. I would, I would love to ask, like, it's sort of speeding ahead a little bit on the chronological story, but I know you continue to dance new Meyer roles throughout your career because I had, I mean, I got to watch you perform the little mermaid both as the little mermaid and the princess. And he's so, his pieces are so dramatic. And I think that something that you have been known for, or that I always experienced was just this incredible dramatic storytelling beyond the technical aspect, which Neumeyer's ballets are that's what they are, you know? And so I'm curious working with him over the course of your career, as you've matured and perhaps stepping into those dramatic roles, as you've grown as a woman, as a mother, as all these different iterations of Sarah, like how has that artistry unfolded for you over those years and that experience of working with him or even the dynamic experience of that versus the 15 year old Sarah? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I, I actually remember, um, when I learned Roman Juliet, um, cause after he casted the ballet, he left and he left it to his team to kind of set the work. And so they set the entire piece except for the crypt scene. And he asked for them not to do that part. And um, when he returned, it was like a mid-afternoon run of the ballet in the like big studio in Copenhagen. And we went through the entire ballet and then stopped right at the crypt scene where Romeo's lying to be dead, possibly on the ground and you're there. And he stopped and he said, okay, now watch. And he like came over and he knelt down to take my place and basically showed me you know, what the, instead of what the steps are, um, but actually, you know, what the intentions are around the scene. And he just started like bawling in the studio, which is, you know, he, he can bring emotion, you know, and, um, and I'm just sitting there and then he, he finished. So he died and all of that. And then he looked at me and he was like, okay, your turn. (laughs) (laughs) Like, Yeah, that was a moment where I was like, okay, (laughs) I really have to learn, like, how do you block everything else out and just kind of um, live in whatever moment you really need to be in um, and make this just purely that. So 
um, you know, all of the eyes staring at you, the middle of the day, the, I'm not in the costume. I'm not on the stage. I don't have the lights. I see everybody's face. There's a mirror right there, right? Mm -hmm. Like only like a couple panels of Marley. I have all of the rehearsal assistants and the other principal dancers. And I have to somehow pretend like none of that is existing and Mm -hmm. just, you know, find something real right now in what's happening in this story. And that was kind of a very big learning moment that I remember. So when John came back, um, and I don't think I got that right away, but I always remember that. Mm -hmm. And um, because there's been many, many, many years of doing studio runs and doing anything really. And it doesn't have to be, you know, it could be doing Tatiana Nonyegin or I could be doing you know, anything, but where you just feel like all the eyes are on you um, and you need to find it in you somewhere to block it all out and be present and be committed and present to whatever it is, whatever story or whoever you are, whatever this person is feeling. Um, But then when John showed up, it was kind of at a moment in my career, I've been a principal for a little while, but I was still, um, I still hadn't really, I'd been a principal for a a while, but I was still, I think younger and, um, and he casted me in both of these roles, as you mentioned. Um, Mm -hmm. and I think for me, it was actually the challenge of going back and forth between doing the roles was where I grew the most. Um, you know, I got to dance each one, which was great. Mermaid is in, in a whole dramatic journey of, you know, just feeling like torn up and, you know, all the emotions of, um, yeah. And then the princesses, you're just kind of this like ditzy, beautiful, unaware, um, person, you know, and to, to, because we were only two casts. So I would be doing one in the matinee and one in the evening, or I would be in a rehearsal doing half hours, this or the other one. And I think for me, just finding the ability to to fully immerse back and forth um, was where I found the greatest challenge, but also the greatest growth. Um, And then of course, being able to work with him again on those roles, um, now that I'd been more established as a dancer. Um, and I could, I think, I think I could, uh, understand more of the information that I'm receiving rather than just be unaware by like how much opportunity and, and like that he was throwing at me when he did it when I was 15, 16, and you don't really (laughs) know how to take it all, but I was able to really kind of like take a lot more in at that moment in my career Mm. at a time that was incredibly challenging. Wow. 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 I'd love to know, because it seems like even from such a young age, every decision you've made has been so intentional. Like even I was thinking when you decided to leave Boston ballet school for the other local ish studio, I mean, when I started ballet. I didn't even consider like other options really, you know, it's like, okay, this is, this is the ballet that I go to. And this is, it's, it's, you are very young to be so discerning and intentional behind, you know, the choices that would really truly guide your career path and in a dramatic and extraordinary way. And, um, 
I know that you've recently announced your retirement after this absolutely amazing career. And I'd love to know if you're, if you're open to sharing, you know, your thought process behind that around that, has it been a long time coming? Was it, were you making it to the 20 year mark? Like what, how has your mind evolved around this decision? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, I, again, like I didn't know exactly. I didn't plan out my career. I didn't know anything about San Francisco ballet when I was in school, really. I I think I knew there was a San Francisco ballet, but I knew about New York city ballet. Um, and it just kind of things just fell into place. And I knew that Copenhagen was not going to be long-term. It wasn't a community that I felt was for me. Um, and so when I got to San Francisco and Helgi was, Helgi was very interested in me and my dancing. And he hired me as a soloist, which is like, you can't turn that down, which was incredible. But again, I didn't really know it, but I got there and I just knew that there was this, I liked the repertory. I liked the feel of the community suited me much better. And, um, the city was beautiful, even though I'd never been before. Um, and so it just felt right. And I think, um, I think after maybe 15, 16 years, I'd had my first son. And that's when I think I started really thinking about how am I, or when am I, or how is this transition going to happen? Um, I wasn't ready at that point, but it definitely, you know, things change when, at least for me, it changed when I had my children. Um, and I, I loved the experience of having children and returning and dancing. Um, and I, then after I had my second son, the pandemic, um, happened maybe when he was six or seven months old. And at that time I noticed I'd started to struggle a bit with feeling like I could be enough that I wanted to be at home and enough that I wanted to be at work. Mm -hmm. Um, and that, that I think really kind of started me thinking about, when is going to be the right time when I really feel filled with my career, but also very importantly, I I need to feel like I'm going to be present with my children and I'm not just putting that off and putting that off. Um, and that is the most important job to me. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I think, um, coming out of the pandemic, when we, you know, started to come back, it was very apparent to me that I was, I kind of already transitioned into a different, um, I'd say just the grind of being in a major ballet company is something that I wasn't going to be able to do anymore with having two kids at home. Um, and that I wanted to be with them. And I wanted to, especially now that my older son is six years old now, um, you just, you want to be present and you want to be helping to shape who, who they become and how they become. And I, I don't ever like to feel like I not able to do as well as I want to do at the ballet because I can't train and I can't be a hundred percent focused at work. Um, like I used to be able to do just because I want to be, you know, at the after school pickups and I want to be bringing him to his after school things and be with my two-year-old. And, um, and that's something that has just really started to 
be hard for me to balance. And then it just made the decision of retirement. Um, when I really feel filled with all that I've danced, kind of an easy one to make and one that I feel excited about because I get to really know that I'm closing, closing this chapter when I feel like I'm still dancing well, mm-hmm. and I'm in a place where, um, I haven't started to come down the other side. <laughs> I find it really, I find it really like interesting how, or, or moving, or I'm not quite sure the exact word, but how you describe that. I think what you described early on in this conversation was quite unusual from what I've heard from other dancers and that you were seeking this like home feeling or these sort of impactful relationships inside of the company you would call home or the place where you would invest your energy. And I think a lot of dancers tend to be a bit of a lone wolf in their perfectionist, or maybe I just was. And so I assume others were, but it's so interesting to hear you describe seeking that type of connection and relationships in an industry that I think is quite challenging to often have because of the competitiveness or just the ways in which the industry works and that you found that as well. You did find that in a company that you've lasted 20 years in one place is just such a testament to your relationships there with yourself and with others. And that you've also found this family, this, 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 this fullness and family and that you're able to hold both in two different palms and now come to the, this decision that, you know, in order to stay in that fullness, you know, you're ready to transition, but I just find that very moving. And I don't know, did you, was that something that you found to be a challenge in the dance world or did you, do you feel you found those you were able to find those relationships in that home. I mean, you, you kind of were, but you know, I mean, it's always been the most important aspect for me is, um, you know, it doesn't matter what I'm dancing. It's always going to have a story and it's always going to be about, um, even if I only get one rehearsal before I have to perform it, or I get to work on something for months, but, um, just, the, the time that I get to make something with somebody else and the experience of dancing with them. And, you know, what is this that we're doing? Like, that's, that's the part of it that I've always loved and enjoyed. And, um, and so that's why I really, I really am thankful for the relationships that I've built and the people that I've gotten to become, you know, so close with and lifelong friends with and, you know, build a community with um, cause I think that's, that's, what's the most important part of it for me. And when I didn't feel like that was going to be my place in Copenhagen, or I didn't feel like it was my place in Boston. And, you know, I went somewhere where I just felt like I could, you know, kind of build a home and build a community and, um, yeah. And, and now that, you know, I, as you said, I have my kids at home and mm-hmm. I, and it's also, there's a, there's a time too, where I really feel like, you know, I remember when I started getting opportunities, you know, and it is, it, it's, it's good to know when it's time to pass on to Mm -hmm. the next generation of people. 
and the next generation of dancers who need those opportunities at that time of their career. Like I needed to experience these roles in my early 20s and mid 20s to mature and become, you know, the, the ballerina I am right now. But these there's only so many shows and it's mm-hmm. it's an incredible thing to have everything line up in order to have a performance, you know, injury free costume, stage, crew. I mean, the fact that you step foot on a stage, it takes so many things to come together. And so I just feel like when you've gotten to a place where you've done it all, you've danced it all, it's all like, there's just a moment where it's time to, to give that on to the next generation of dancers. And that's also something that feels very like when you're when you care so much about, you know, a community and a place, like that's also another part of it. Yeah. I don't know if that makes any sense. You can edit all that out. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, it makes a lot of sense. That resonates. I think as well, it's such, you know, people are always curious. Jess and I are, are both retired from the stage as well. And people are always curious, like, why, like, why did you, why did you quit is one I've gotten before. Why'd you give up? Which is also feels good here, (laughs) but, but basically my point being is that it's a privilege to be the one that decides, um, you know, and and the decision not coming from a place of injury or mental burnout or resentment, um, which are all quite common reasons to stop dancing or to stop performing. And I think that having such, having the space and the time and the privilege to make a really intentional, meaningful choice, um, is just such a, it's just a beautiful way to, as you say, kind of pass the baton to younger artists, but as well to realize, um, a new layer of your artistry off stage. And, and that's actually the namesake of artists becoming our podcast and the work that we're doing to elevate standards of well-being across the performing arts world is that so often when we think our work is done, it's actually just beginning. And so I'd love to hear if, I know that you've thought about this because you're a dancer, but, um, where, if, where might you redirect your creative energy or the yearning inside of you to be a part of something communal and meaningful and creative and expressive, um, beyond your, your incredible dance career? Yes. I thank you for asking. I have obviously thought a lot about it. Um, and I have, um, I started a summer festival company a year ago, Tahoe Dance Camp. And the reason I started it was not because I always thought that I would start a summer festival company. It was because um, in the middle of the pandemic, I saw um, an opportunity that I could fill a need, which was to house a bunch of dancers and create work and Zoom in choreographers and um, and then from there, I was living in Tahoe, um, a part of the community, and I, I was able to kind of be organized enough and um, have a vision in order to make, um, make it happen. And I realized that I have the skill set to do something like that. Mm-hmm. But I did that out of fulfilling a need at a certain time that also, again, I wanted to be dancing with the community of artists that I love dancing with and I wanted to be making new work. And so it was also, I I wanted to be dancing. Um, 
I've had a lot of interest and questions about whether or not I'm going to continue to do that. Um, and to be perfectly honest, I just, I don't know if it's something that I want to spend my time doing. Um, because having not just, but in my instance, having two kids, I really am um, very conscious of how I spend my time and I want to do something that's valuable. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I think initially I want to take at least the first six months or so and figure out whether it's a part of the ballet world or not, Mm -hmm. um, or a part of a different kind of organization that does something that you know, helps the world in some way, um, which is something that I'm also passionate about and utilizing those skills um, in another way that doesn't necessarily have to do anything with dance. Um, But I want to take some time and really figure out um, how I want to spend my time when I'm not going to be spending it with my kids. Mm. I, I once had someone to tell me, and it's always sat with me. And I believe Shelby and I have talked about it, but time is the most valuable currency that we have. And I remember, I believe this was said to me when I think a lot of dancers struggle sometimes with our value and even in monetary, you know, especially when you become freelance or it's just, you don't always have that steady, great company paycheck that is a luxury sometimes. And and always kind of undervaluing myself and, and or pouring myself into all these places, but not getting anything back. And I just remember this person saying to me, your time is your most valuable currency and where you put it is valuable. And A, as a way to teach me how to ask for what I'm worth, but B, to teach me go where you want to endorse your energy and, and something you believe in that so... I love that you just said that because it's not really a race to do the things. It's, it's more an investment in who, in who you are and what you surround yourself with and what you love. So amen. (laughs) Amen. I, I also, that, that just hits home in so many, in so many resonant ways. And actually when you were speaking, Sarah, it reminded me of, this time we had a stage run through of something. Um, this is the Boston opera house. And there was a man sitting in the audience with a young girl. And I just figured it was like somebody's dad, you know, just watching like a, a stage run through. And, um, I had to go get my bag was like down in the audience. So I hopped off the stage after class finished, um, to walk and get my bag. And I just, I said, hi, I introduced myself so that the dad would feel comfortable. And turns out it was the man who controlled the spotlight for like years, for like decades, he was the spotlight guy at the top back of the theater. And I was so touched to meet this man who, who spent his life spotlighting other people and like finding, you know, finding the talent and spotlighting it. And, uh, I've written about this a bit because it was just this kind of interaction that took me by such surprise when I realized as dancers and as performers, we, we work so hard to share these stories and to be expressive but essentially like we're, we're the ones in the spotlight, like it's being shown on us, hopefully. (laughs) Um, but then we retire and a lot, there's a lot of reconciliation that has to happen. There's a lot of inner work around our identity and who we are and what we're worth and what we have to give to the world now that we're not in the spotlight. And what I'm hearing from you around, you know, causes that you're excited to support or the way that you're able to reflect back what you've worked hard for and what was given to you is like, 
we actually spend years absorbing that spotlight. And then it is up to us to internalize it and metabolize it and figure out our own very unique way to shine it back out into the world. And you're at that precipice right now. And I'm just so excited to follow that. And I'm, I'm proud of, we just kind of met, but I'm proud of you and I'm proud to know you. And I'm, I'm thrilled to share your, the, you know, intimate details of your story with our audience and just want to thank you for that and congratulate you on, on this exciting time. It's really extraordinary. Thank you. Thank you so much, Sarah. I'm so excited to come watch your performance and to witness all that you continue to become into and just thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I, I uh, feel very honored to be here today. So thank you. Thank you. Want to connect further with our community at Artists Becoming? Rate and review this podcast and subscribe to stay on top of our weekly guest artist conversations and our small chats, big topics. Check out www.artistbecoming.com to learn more about our monthly subscription membership filled with on-demand guided meditation and yummy yoga practices to support your unique journey as a performing artist. Follow along on Instagram at artistbecoming for sneak peeks and inspiring content and DM us the dream artists, athletes, performers, psychologists that you'd love to hear from or topics you'd like for us to unpack. Sharing is caring, so fire up that group chat, share to your stories, comment, share, 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 and just stay connected with us. We are here for your becoming.